is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome to this issue of Asia Insight. I'm delighted to be joined today by two guests to discuss the upcoming election for the new chief executive of Hong Kong, uh, which takes place on May the 8th. I'm joined today by Yvonne Chu. Um, she is an associate professor of strategy and policy at the U.S. Naval War College, but in her academic career has uh, spent time in Hong Kong. She was a, a professor at um, the University of Hong Kong from 2010 to 2017. Hong Kong and democratization in East Asia is one of the topics that Yvonne works on, and her forthcoming book is tentatively titled Iron Fist, Silk Glove, The Evolution of Soft Authoritarianism in Hong Kong and East Asia. So she's joining us today, as is uh, William McCahill. Bill is a member of NBR's Board of Advisors. Bill is a 25-year Foreign Service veteran. He began his career with a posting to Hong Kong, then spent time in Taiwan and in China, a period of time in Europe, and then concluded his career at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing as the Chargé d'Affaires there. And then subsequent to his diplomatic career, Bill spent a period of time working in both Hong Kong and China, um, advising clients on investment and financial issues. And so two experts on Hong Kong today joining us for this issue of Asia Insight. Yvonne, let me start with you. How would you define this election? What does this election of the new chief executive mean for the people of Hong Kong, for Hong Kong's future? So I think this entire conversation about the election is going to be rather different than how we would talk about a normal election. Um, And that's because this event really is the culmination of a massive political overhaul in the wake of protests in the last few years. And so it's an election in name only. Right. There's a single candidate um, who has been selected as an approved patriot. There's no genuine contestation. And this is an important distinction um, for listeners to understand just so that we can better understand what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, I think that installing John Lee, who is somebody who has only has experience in security, it signals two things simultaneously. The first is that Hong Kong's values and priorities have firmly changed. There's less concern than before with wooing or addressing the concerns of the business community. Uh, incidentally, Lee is among a group of Hong Kong officials who have been sanctioned by the U.S. for their role in the um, recent crackdowns. And the business community is responding to both the political crackdown and the COVID lockdowns. There's been some industry relocation to you know, Singapore and Taiwan, for example. The second thing that it signals is that social order is paramount and Beijing hopes that this will reassure the global and financial markets and economic industries. But the second thing is actually a little complicated. In the long run, I think Beijing wants to shift a lot of investments and capital flows away from Hong Kong and to other cities like Shanghai, especially, and it's succeeding in doing that. Before COVID hit, Hong Kong's share of China's GDP had fallen from 16% in 1997 at the time of the handover to 3%. Um, of China's GDP in 2019. But even in 2019, about two-thirds of equity financing that was raised and two-thirds of foreign direct investment in China were conducted through Hong Kong's financial institutions. So in the short term and medium term, Beijing still needs Hong Kong, and therefore it wants a very orderly Hong Kong, hence the selection of John Lee, but also one that still looks democratic to everyone who is not looking too closely or everyone who anyone who wants a reason to not look closely. Mm, thank you. Let me go to Bill for a second here and pick up on some of those ideas. What Yvonne said is interesting on the one hand that, you know, the, the selection of John Lee, I like the way you described it as that was it the installation of John Lee rather than the election of John Lee. Um, on the one hand, this is intended to send a signal to the business community that this is kind of business as normal. Hong Kong is still going to be the vibrant financial hub that it has been for decades. On the other hand, Yvonne said John is, John Lee has been sanctioned by the U.S. for his role in the crackdown on some of the pro-democracy protests in the last few years. Does that complicate the message that Beijing is trying to send? So, Bill, maybe you could could kind of give us some insights into that dilemma between these two two different objectives. I agree with everything that Yvonne just had to say about the um, the significance of this installation, as you put it. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, Michael, you said at the outset that I'd started my diplomatic career in Hong Kong, and that was in 1976 when the Union flag still flew and so on. And the quality of the civil service, whether they were British expats or the senior Chinese in the civil service, was really uh, just extraordinarily high. And 
with a kind of laser focus on the economy and on keeping keeping the city as this kind of international financial center. And so you've now got kind of a clash of values <clears throat> in a sense where the where the the rulers now, the Chinese communists, uh, with their emphasis on control and on social order, in a sense, perhaps don't even understand that for an international financial center to function effectively, that you need this whole ecosystem of uh, the free flow of ideas, the free flow of people, and the free flow of, of capital. There is no city in China, Shanghai, for example, which people sometimes see as the sort of uh, the rising Hong Kong. There's no city in China where any of that prevails. So it, it's just such a deep contradiction where the, the Chinese authorities will always come down on the side of control and order. Uh, I mean, you see even in the mainland propaganda, uh, just in the last couple of days, Xi Jinping has once again been talking about the orderly uh, flow of, of capital. Well, <laughs> that's just not how it works. And it's not where inventiveness comes from. It's not where real deal making is done. And so uh, this may be an example of what the Chinese are now calling a full process democracy. Uh, but it's really much more like uh, a scenario that Lewis Carroll might have might have written, where you f first have the result and then you have the election. Great. Thank you, Bill. You both outlined a series of, of directions we could take. I'd like to start off by focusing on what this means for the people in Hong Kong. And so, Yvonne, I maybe come back to you to begin with here. You were in Hong Kong um, until 2017, so you saw the early stages of the umbrella movement in person. We've obviously seen another couple of years of street protests and pro-democracy activism uh, with the imposition of the new national security law. What what do you think the um, uh, this transition now to John Lee taking over as chief executive means for the people of Hong Kong and their push for democracy and the push for some of the promises that were made with the handover agreement uh, between the PRC and the British government? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, unfortunately, it means that the, pro the prospects for the pro-democracy movement are pretty dead <laughs> at the moment. And I, it pains me to say that. Um, but right now, there's not, I'm not seeing a lot of paths forward. Um, one of the, I think what we're seeing for the people of Hong Kong is that Hong Kong is well on its way to becoming just another Chinese city, right? It's going to lose all of that uh, distinctiveness that Bill was talking about um, that he saw during his career. Installing Lee as the uh, chief executive is a reinforcement of all of the other recent developments in Hong Kong. There was, you know, there were very immediate chilling effects from the national security law. You saw universities cutting ties with the student unions, the government cutting ties with the largest teachers unions, the media outlets leaving. Um, you know, just a couple of days ago, the uh, Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong canceled its free press awards, um, and which is unfortunate, but they, what choice do they have, right? So there have been a lot of arrests for innocuous things under the auspices of the national security law, including people holding up, you know, blank pieces of paper, right? There's lengthy pretrial detention, denial of bail, these very long jail sentences. Um, the takeover of RTHK, which was a very um, BBC-like um, media outlet, and. You know, so and there's also been changes. Uh, there there have been influences on the judiciary, and I'm happy to talk about that if if you're interested in it. So, you know, the upshot is that the opposition parties are rendered ineffective. The government is monopolizing the media. The rule of law is being violated. Civil liberties are being curtailed. And so, all you have left is the semblance of freedom with this sham election. And so, for the people of Hong Kong, it means it will eventually no longer be a special administrative region. Effectively, it will become just an SEZ, a special economic zone, just like Shanghai um, and Guangdong. Thanks, Sivan. One more question, because I think it's a very important one. Um, and it goes back to the question or the comment you made at the very beginning. On the surface, you can put pressure on a democracy movement, you can jail uh, pr protesters, you can force people into exile, you can close down um, unhelpful media outlets. But once you start going after the judiciary, which the, the, the government has, and I mean, I have been tracking a little bit some of the resignations of some of the um, some of the justices. And again, these are not necessarily um, 
they're not all Hong Kong Chinese justices. They're under the, the judicial system of the of the territory, um, you still have um, it's under British law, and so there are still British judges and other Commonwealth judges who are also occupying positions there. How does that pressure on the judiciary, which would seem to be really challenging the rule of law and sort of this sense of an independent judicial system? How does that rub up against the interests of a business community that is looking for some stability or at least, you know, a, a, an understanding that there is a level judicial playing, playing field, that there's a way that um, you, you've got the kind of uh, framework there in which um, disputes can be managed um, without interference from political concerns? Uh, the, you know, the, I mean, as you mentioned, Hong Kong has a common law system. Uh, the handover agreement in 97 included a provision for a number of foreign and non-permanent judges from selected common law jurisdictions, and they, were, they have all come from the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, you mentioned some resignations. There was actually very early on, right uh, right after the national security law was implemented, that one Australian foreign judge resigned from the Court of Final Appeal, and then just a, a couple months ago, last yeah, in March, um, two UK judges resigned, and you know, and they they issued a statement saying that the because the Hong Kong government had abandoned its political values, these you know the judges thought that they could they can no longer tacitly legitimize this ongoing political oppression. What's interesting is there are still nine foreign judges um, who have who've stayed on the court. Uh, I'm not sure if this is coincidental. They are all retired in their home countries. Um, so what does what does this mean for the, uh, how does this rub up against the business community? I think it should be. So it's one of you know, it's one of the bargains that Beijing is counting on, right? That people are willing to trade stability for economic growth um, and economic wealth. And so far, uh, the people in China have largely accepted this trade-off. The people in Hong Kong have you know, um, certainly been, have, are ambivalent about it, right? um, uh, um, in contrast. But I think what you will, what we will see in Hong Kong is that, and you know, Bill mentioned this, is that if, if it comes to a trade-off between stability and economic robustness, they will always choose stability. And they've already signaled um, that they will pick the former. They've signaled this both in Hong Kong, but also in mainland China. And you can see this with the, for example, the COVID restrictions in Shanghai. I guarantee many people in Shanghai thought this could never happen to them, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, but, you know, a, a government that is, that is unwilling to respect um, political civil liberties will also not respect economic civil liberties. Um, these are to to the Chinese government uh, indistinguishable, um, and I think that will have that will have ramifications for the business community. Mm. Thanks, Yvonne. Bill, let me come back to you a second here. One of the things Yvonne just said is interesting that that stability really trumps every other concern. I'm going to ask you to read into the political tea leaves a little bit here. And so um, I'm curious, you know, wh why did we not see Carrie Lam continue into another term? And uh, if I rewind six months or so ago, this was one of the scenarios that was being posited in the media that she, she was seeking to run again or run, uh, to sort of continue to have a, a term as, a, as the chief executive. Was it her failure to kind of introduce the national security law and manage the protests? That was a uh, sort of a, the nail in the coffin, so to speak, for mm. her failure to, to continue in that position. So there's a sort of set of political tea leaf questions within Hong Kong. But I'm also curious, since Yvonne mentioned, uh, you know, Shanghai and, and sort of Hong Kong turning into just another Chinese city, just, uh, you know, not really a special administrative region anymore, but a, essentially a, a special economic zone. What are the signals that the installation of John Lee in Hong Kong is sending to other politician, political figures within the PRC? I mean, is there something going on within CCP party politics for which the Hong Kong situation is 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 one of the, um, you know, is, is, is it sort of a, a, a chip in some larger game that's taking place within, within the party elite? Yeah, that's a very intriguing question. I'm not quite sure how to approach it, except to say that I think John Lee with his background in the uh, police force, very much fits the mold of so many other Communist Party cadre within the PRC itself. Uh, Carrie Lam, with her Catholic girls' school education and the primness and all of that, 
I think was just culturally not the sort of fit that the current management in, in Beijing um, understands and feels comfortable with. I think back to the time of the, of the handover in 1997 and the sort of Chinese leaders uh, who directed that, Jiang Zemin particularly, but Chen Shichun, Zhu Rongji to some extent, and who were the Chinese leaders in Hong Kong who sort of picked up the baton at the other end? Well, they were all people kind of like Jiang and Zhu and Chen. In fact, some of them had been in school together in the 1930s. So certainly Zhu, Jiang, and Chen, who very much was the architect of China's comeback from Tiananmen, from the killings in Tiananmen in June of 89, these are people who understood the role that Hong Kong played. You know, the cliche is, is the, the goose that lays the golden egg, but they understood this kind of open door and the flow of ideas and expertise and people that Hong Kong provided and that could strengthen the kind of economic program that they were trying to implement on the, on the mainland. That generation of leaders is gone. I mean, they're few survivors are now very old and infirm men. And so you have now a Chinese leadership in, in Beijing that has a very strong xenophobic streak to it. It's very Northern Chinese in its outlook. Here's Xi Jinping, the general secretary, boasting that his finest teachers were the peasants with whom he supposedly worked during the Cultural Revolution out there in, in Shanxi. And if you look at the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee, the top leadership of the, of the country, there really are very few who have much urban experience. There's Han Zheng, who was the mayor and party secretary in Shanghai. Some people see him as a, a premier in a new government if Xi Jinping goes ahead and gets his third general secretary term. There is Liu He, vice premier with some American education, who does kind of the economic guru, I guess. These are people who I suspect have some understanding of Hong Kong's of Hong Kong's role. But by and large, the people, the guys, because there's only one woman in the whole mix at the Politburo level, the guys who run the place kind of look like John Lee. And so I think he's a he's a character who sort of fits fits a mold that they're they themselves come from and that they're quite um, quite comfortable with. Thanks, Bill. Let's come back to Yvonne, and I'd like to sort of step back from the the, the details of, of politics within Hong Kong, politics within China. I'm actually curious for your thoughts, Yvonne, on, on what does this set of developments and this increased pressure mean on the increased pressure on the, the pro-democracy movement within Hong Kong? What does that mean for broader efforts toward democratization across East Asia? And I know you've been studying this as part of your academic career. The promise of the one country, two systems model back in 1997 was that it was going to give that space for Hong Kong and China to somehow evolve towards a more harmonious um, existence. Um, obviously, Beijing has run out of patience with that approach, and, and that's probably what's driving some of the moves over the last few years. But stepping back, how does this this kind of increased pressure on on Hong Kong, the the introduction of the new uh, the national security law, the, the the closure of the free press? I mean, what does this mean for broader efforts toward democratization across the the East Asia Pacific region? Uh, I think. What we what we'll see is different effects in different areas of East of East Asia. And so in the East East Asia, like Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, it actually only I think everything that's going on in Hong Kong only highlights the enormous uh, accomplishments actually of these three countries and very specifically Taiwan. Right. The you know, we're all familiar with. China's narrative about Taiwan and, you know, it's a place of chaos and, um, you, know, you know, pretty standard democratic chaos. And this is and, um, you know, one reason that Chinese people cannot be uh, trusted with Western style democracy. Now, you know, if you guys are familiar with Taiwan politics, it can be pretty chaotic. <laughs> it's a pretty rowdy place. But what's been interesting is that uh, that in Taiwan's case, you have a country that has been under enormous international pressure. And that has actually made it more democratic and more liberal um, and more more 
protective of its rule of law. That's quite unusual, right? Um, usually you would expect to see more uh, transition to more authoritarian control as an effort to try to more effectively uh, stave off the external threat. But Taiwan's been the opposite. And, you know, the reasons for that, I think, are rather interesting, but it's it's very, it's unusual and significant. And I think we're seeing now with both Japan and South Korea that, you know, they also are at least currently becoming a little um, more resistant to Chinese pressure. This is not just about Hong Kong, though. I mean, to be fair, it has a lot to do with China's broader ambitions in the region, but certainly what's happening in Hong Kong has not escaped their notice. In other parts of Asia, I think the, the effect is going to be a little different. Southeast Asia, for the most part, is it's, it's a very diverse place to begin with, but I think developments there are going to be largely driven by uh, domestic factors, uh, less Although, you know, there's certainly there are it's been interesting to see the spread of protest ideas across the globe. Right. Um, and some of the some of the tactics that Hong Kong protesters used in the second round. So in kind of the in the 2019, not the 2014, but well, actually no, also in 2014. So some of the tactics that Hong Kong protesters used in, you know, they're in both rounds of protests. Some of them were drawn from. Taiwan's uh, sunflower movement protests, and then some of those Hong Kong tactics were then picked up by other, you know, pro-democratic movements elsewhere in, you know, Thailand, um, and also in non non-Asian countries as well. So there's actually simultaneously maybe a influence from the particular tactics of the democratic movement for the people, but also mixed responses from governments. Thanks. I, a follow-up for you, and then Bill, you can chime in on this one as well. I like, Yvonne, how you characterize this sort of demonstration effect, you know, tactics being used by protest movements in, in Taiwan or Hong Kong being mirrored elsewhere. One of the striking provisions of the national security law is the extraterritoriality provisions of that law. Um, you know, the fact that um, you can essentially be, wherever you are in the world, if you if you act or speak in ways that contravene the national security law, China has said that it, it, you are still subject to those provisions. So looking at the scenario we have right now, where um, increasing numbers of, of Hong Kong Chinese are, are finding ways to get out, and, and some of them are moving to North America, some are moving to Europe, many are moving to Taiwan, and many are moving elsewhere across the region. Is there a risk that in addition to the sort of demonstration effects of protest uh, tactics that you just described, that we'll actually see Chinese pressure I mean, on those communities of emigres, but also on the governments and the countries in which they are now residing, will we see different methods that Beijing uses to kind of continue going after Hong Kong Chinese who have got out of Hong Kong because that need to control is just so, so intense? And so, Yvonne, if you could answer that first, and then, Bill, I'd like you to chime in on this one as well. Yeah, I think we will see that, and partly because we've already been seeing that. There's, you know, I mean, even for a while. So there's already been fairly developed influence campaigns abroad, including the Confucius Institutes and various other um, you know, uh, educational uh, programs. That is the part of what the Confucius Institutes do is serve as a gathering place for overseas Chinese, um, which is you know, it's double-edged sword, right? Because that means they can also be observed. Um, so there's already there's there's already the long arm of the CCP apparatus overseas, and I think certainly that they were not going to be shy about using that to try to put pressure on the Hong Kong diaspora or other elements of the Chinese diaspora. They've issued on the issue of extraterritoriality. You know, there's uh, I know that they've issued. They've presented charges against some dissidents who are living overseas abroad. You know, and these are dissidents who have family, often close family, still in Hong Kong or in China. So that is usually the that's usually the way you put pressure <laughs> on on uh, on the diaspora is through their family connections um, still at home. How much resistance there will be by you know other governments is a little unclear, right? Historically. You know, China's made very strong ethno-national claims over 
ethnic Chinese people and governments have been mixed about the resistance. So we, we hope that in light of all of these developments that, um, you know, that liberal democratic governments would be more protective of their residents, um, including many of whom are actual citizens. Um, but it's a, it's a little unclear at this point. Thanks, Bill. What are, what are your thoughts on that set of questions? Well, I, I completely agree that the, the sort of intimidation and use even of international uh, organizations like Interpol uh, to try to exfiltrate Chinese from wherever their foreign domiciles uh, are uh, to bring them to stand trial in China, whether those have been numerous so-called corruption uh, cases where they've pursued people abroad and intimidated their families back in, in China. All of that's just part of the part of the tactics and these sort of broad influence uh, operations that uh, Yvonne spoke about, whether it's Confucius Institutes or actually meddling in domestic politics as they've done in uh, in New Zealand and Australia and attempted to do in Canada the uh, this is all just part of the part part of the standard uh, Chinese communist modus operandi i think but what i what i wanted to come back to was a point that you both alluded to and that is how does this all affect hong kong's people I and mean, yes we have prominent activists who have who have fled actually you think of the booksellers gone to taipei and 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 so on and others who've gone to the uk taking advantage of the of the johnson government's um, <laughs> open door policy on on uh, bno passports but you also have large numbers tens of thousands literally of ordinary middle class people who voted with their feet in response to the national security law and to the way it's been implemented. This is a very significant brain drain. Even Carrie Lam has spoken about this as a, as a problem. And it's certainly something that affects the ability of uh, foreign, of all businesses in the city to conduct their, their business. Because what the, the people who have left, and I've, I speak with friends in Hong Kong often about this, it's the doctors and the nurses and the accountants and the young lawyers. Many of these are young families with children who don't want to subject their children to what they see coming in this kind of security above all, stability above all sort of uh, revised education system. And it's, uh, I mean, Hong Kong's population is actually is actually shrinking. And it, the, the brains that get that drain away are not going to be replaced by mainlanders. I mean, I saw from my own experience dealing with the with investment bankers there that mainland hires, they might have all tick all the boxes and all the technical skills of manipulating numbers and running business models and all the rest of it. But they lack the sort of critical acumen, the judgment that a liberal education has given, sometimes imperfectly, to to Hong Kong people. And I know for a fact that you have, once the national security law uh, was implemented, you had people like stock analysts, financial analysts, effectively self-censoring, lest they, in, in a report on a, on a particular company, they somehow transgress uh, some sort of rather blurred red line about what would constitute a national security offense. So I think this is all part of that Hong Kong ecosystem that has uh, nurture the sort of financial vitality of the place. And it's now, uh, frankly, it's changed very, 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 very fast. And while the, superficially it looks, it might be a more orderly place and, and so on. In, in, in fact, there's something, the, the soul of the, of the city has really been uh, almost excised. And Keith, Keith Richberg, who happens to be the current head of the Foreign Correspondence Club, the Washington Post journalist who's dean of the journalism school at HKU, uh, has written in the Washington Post a few months ago of a tale of two cities. There is this Hong Kong city that we all knew that had this kind of vibrancy and this sort of uh, mix of cultures and a sort of slightly swashbuckling side to it. And that's that's now being lost. And the other, the other part of the city, the other city, if you will, 
is this kind of Chinese, communist Chinese mainland oriented, whether it's the banks or the business people or the lawyers. And for them, this is fine. It's, um, you know, it's Shanghai without having to use a VPN to go on Google. So I think that's where we, we really are en route to, a, to just another Chinese city. And what that means is it's just simply Hong Kong is not going to be the place, borrowed, borrowed place, borrowed time uh, that we've worked in and that people knew for all of these decades as a major international financial center. I think the, those, those days are, um, are really now in the, in the past. And John Lee's installation kind of puts, the, it puts at least the interim cap on that. Quick follow-up. Bill, to you, but then I'd like Yvonne's thoughts on this too. You're both describing a scenario in which Hong Kong is turning into just another Chinese city. It's losing its best and brightest for all manner of reasons for those who are able to, to get out. It's losing its soul, Bill, as you described. If that is the case, and you look at Hong Kong and you sort of look ahead over the next five, 10 years, to what extent is it still an attractive destination for businesses to be located. I mean, obviously, you've got decades of history, but a, a framework and architecture for uh, for Hong Kong serving as a financial hub. But um, what you're both describing is sort of a hollowing out of that that framework. And if that's if that's the case, how swiftly do we do you expect to see those kinds of changes flowing through in terms of business decisions? And I ask this thinking specifically about what we've seen within the media sector, where a number of, of Western journalists who were originally based in China and then were based in Hong Kong have now moved out. Um, Yvonne mentioned earlier the pressure on the Foreign Correspondents Club and the awards that it, it cancelled um, uh, last week. So I'm curious for your both of your assessment of if you look out over the next few years, John Lee's installed, Hong Kong is stable on the surface, but is it still going to be an attractive place for um, uh, for businesses to invest and to be located? Well, I think it's it still has its geography to support it. And if these COVID restrictions on travel and the, the quarantines and lockdowns should be uh, relaxed, it will, uh, you, you know, the sort of tra the Asian transportation hub that Hong Kong has been will, um, will revive. But the architecture, to use your word, Michael, that kind of shaped all of this, it's the legal system, it's transparent regulators, it's, it's the, and it's the, it's the Hong Kong people who populated that architecture, who ran those institutions. That's what's slowly eroding. Where comes this, it's, you know, the Hemingway's or apocryphal Hem Hemingway's uh, description of bankruptcy, <laughs> that it, it starts slowly and then all of a sudden uh, that, that we'll know that, whether it's, there are nine remaining common law uh, judges on the, on the court of final appeal. Will more of them Will more of them leave out of conscience or from pressure from their home governments or what? Is that going to be the sign? How about the SFC, the Securities and Futures Commission, the stock market regulator? You really cannot have a major equities trading center of international stature without having that kind of, of regulator. And when the current, as a, as a British securities lawyer who is the current CEO of that, when he leaves, if he's is he going to be replaced by uh, some guy from the Chinese uh, from the securities regulator in in Beijing? Um, when once those people are are gone, I think the 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 level of, of of business confidence, certainly in the financial sector, will will diminish. I mean, yeah, there are as, as you've seen from the newspaper reports, many, many stories of uh, financial sector people trying to relocate to Singapore, which has some of what old Hong Kong did, but it's, in a way, it's been kind of under the Lee family, has been kind of run like a Chinese high school. It has a lot of the, the sort of antiseptic orderliness that, uh, you know, that's characterize it. So for businesses that are, are, involved in manufacturing, for the movement of goods, logistics, all that sort of stuff, Hong Kong might still have its attractions. For the financial sector, 
where this legal system and um, transparent regulation are absolutely a primary concern, I think the attractiveness of the place is, is diminishing. You'll notice that the, the current head of the um, AmCham in Hong Kong, one of the biggest AmChams in, in the world, really, former journalist, and I think even at one point president of the FCC, um, she's leaving. And that's, you know, another one of these straws in the wind. And so give it, give it another few years. And I think we'll see more of that kind of, of talent, uh, having left the, left the territory. Thanks, Bill. Um, Yvonne, to what extent do you agree or, or disagree with some of what Bill has just outlined for Hong Kong's future? So I agree with everything that he said. I wanted add first to what he said about the about people leaving. I'm sure as both of you also know many people who have left um, you know since 2020 and um, although with I know some people who went back who deliberately went back <laughs> as well. Um, and the and what we're seeing now with the covid lockdown is interesting because you have you know I mean Hong Kong has been doing these lockdowns and mass testing from the beginning lengthy quarantine periods, entry restrictions and then these quarantine detention centers, and all of this now is to align with China's zero COVID policy. This has led some people to relocate out of Hong Kong on top of the people who had already left Hong Kong because of the political crackdown. And so, as Bill said, this human capital flight is going to have long-term and serious ramifications for Hong Kong's economy. But to the question of, you know, what to to what extent is it still going to be an attractive place to do business? Um, I think, unfortunately, it will still be as attractive as Shanghai is. And that is honestly to say reasonably attractive. Many people and businesses are happy to accommodate themselves to this form of governance, to the new Hong Kong and um, you know, just as they have to China. And so, so even as the quality of Hong Kong diminishes, there will still be plenty of people who are willing to go there and willing to do business there. You know, Hong Kong, is, as I said before, China cannot replace Hong Kong yet as a financial market. So, you know, Hong Kong is still important for now. It gives Hong Kong a very limited reprieve, right? It is still a freer place than mainland China, not by much, but, but still is for the moment. And I think that's one of the reasons. I think an interesting, in the long run, though, right, ultimately, if Hong Kong does indeed become just another Chinese city, if it does drive away a lot of the... Uh, multinational companies and foreign direct investments and things like that, um, and the trading, this actually might be okay from China's perspective in the long run. I think part of China's current five-year plan is to be more self-reliant um, in all industries. And I think that would, and that, I, uh, would include key aspects of the financial sector. That self-reliance will actually make China more dangerous um, globally because it will be less vulnerable to things like sanctions and other types of punishments for for its aggression. Thanks. Um, by, um, you know, the calculation in Beijing was obviously to push ahead with the national security law to, to crack down on Hong Kong to essentially consider the costs of those actions to be worth paying in the interests of securing the control that, that China wanted. And so my penultimate question to you both here is, what signal does that send China's partners around the world? Um, you know, this was a suppose, supposedly a 50-year deal in, in 1997 to, or 1992, which took effect in 97, to, uh, to have this one country, two systems sort of evolutionary period. Um, we are halfway into that period and, and you know, China's essentially sort of rushed to a, to a conclusion and pulled Hong Kong very firmly into the Chinese system. Are there lessons for China's partners over the reliability of Beijing as, as sort of an interlocutor, um, a, a treaty signer, given its, its actions in Hong Kong? Well, I, <laughs> I think yes. I mean, one of the most striking statements that a Chinese spokesman has issued about Hong Kong uh, was one of the foreign ministry uh, wolf warriors who said that the Sino-British agreement, that's just history. It doesn't matter anymore. And that was a solemn undertaking between two sovereign governments and notified to the United Nations at the time as a sort of guarantor that the um, 
that the agreement's terms, the core of it being the one country, two systems and the Hong Kong basic law, uh, that those would remain intact for 50 years. And with a sort of cynical flip of the hand, uh, the foreign ministry dismissed this international agreement um, as just a kind of uh, amusing fossil from the past. And what that says, coupled with Chinese behavior in uh, international institutions like the WTO, for example, um, I think the lesson to China's partners, be they they in the trade mode or uh, in a more strategic mode, is that this is simply a, a regime whose word cannot be cannot be trusted, and um, you don't have to be a, uh, a Zoroastrian to know that when when trust goes and lies take its place, um, it's very hard to maintain the that kind of international uh, comedy, really. That we've um, when when Bob Zelik spoke years ago about expecting China to become a, a responsible stakeholder. Um, well, that's, that really hasn't, hasn't panned out. And by their actions, they've shown uh, to their partners that um, they're simply, simply not, um, not trustworthy. So kicks the pins out from under it, I'd say. Yvonne, anything to add? Yeah, so um, I do think that Beijing was pulled into this Hong Kong crackdown um, the way it unfolded. I don't think that this happened. This is what Beijing would have wanted for Hong Kong at this time. This was not the timeline that it wanted, um, but it also couldn't back down once it was placed in this position. And so it made the best of a bad situation for itself, which, of course, is disastrous for a lot of other people. In terms of what it signals to you know, what this, what the crackdown and this sham election, all these things signal to international partners about its reliability, about China's reliability. I do think that China is, I agree that it does um, erode the CCP's reliability. On the other hand, they're betting that the world is still willing to trade their consciences for economic access. And, you know, certainly many countries and you know, individual and actors are willing to do that. I think one of the interesting questions, I think, this, you know, one of the interesting questions is, you know, whether, so, I mean, for our, you know, um, apropos of our discussion, what does the Hong, what can the Hong Kong election, this quote unquote election do to help mitigate some of these, uh, some of its damaged reputation, right? And I think it's interesting that they're going through this trouble of this facade of an election, but there's only one candidate. And so if you're going through that trouble, then why not more than one candidate, right? It would present a much better illusion. Um, Beijing is going to control the outcome anyway, so there's very little risk of that. And I think that partly the presentation of a single person for the chief executive is a clear signal to both Hong Kong and to the outside world that Beijing is thoroughly in charge, right? That it can hold a sham election with impunity and everybody's going to go along with it. And to some extent, Beijing is right about that. And we can see it in the international community's language and in the, for example, in the choice, in, con, in continuing to call this choice for chief executive an election, right? It signals an unconscious, unconscious acceptance of Beijing's narrative. It's the same way that people talk about Taiwan unification or reunification with China, even though it would be neither of those things. And if we compare it to how people talk about, for example, what Russia is doing to Ukraine, Right. Russia uses the same language of reunification, but we don't use Russia's terms. That's because we reject its claims. But people commonly use China's language of unification for Taiwan instead of calling it a conquest, a seizure, annexation, which is what it would really be. And in Hong Kong's case, people commonly call it an election instead of a selection installation. And I think that affects the way that we as observers and actors conceive of the problem. And I think China is very aware of that. That's an interesting, interesting observation, Yvonne. Let me ask one final question. You know, thinking about what you've both described, this brain drain from Hong Kong, um, emigre, diaspora populations out across the world. And, and these are the people who have grown up in a complex environment. I mean, Hong Kong has a, has a difficult colonial legacy. It's a, a, a Chinese 
city with with British imperial order imposed upon it for a century. That's the outcome of, of various forces made it the, the place that was so vibrant and so attractive. And as you're describing it, those people who represent that Hong Kong are now moving across the world. What happens to the Hong Kong Chinese? I mean, I'm thinking of, of you know, the analogy in my mind, and it's not a very good one necessarily, is is the Tibetan exile community that sort of coalesced in, in northern India, in part because there was a figure like the Dalai Lama able to kind of orchestrate a common position and for decades push back against the CCP narrative about Tibet and, and China. But but do the Hong Kong Chinese just disappear from history? Do they coalesce in a way that that always reminds China that there was this vibrant city on its on its southern coast? You know, I'm curious for your your observations both at the the international political level, but also at the sort of population human level. I mean, what what happens when when a people with an identity essentially is is you know pushed off the world stage? I mean, what what are the implications of that? So, Yvonne, you first, and then we'll give Bill the last word today. Okay, it's a terribly depressing question. <laughs> so, I mean, so yes, I think. They, you will, and we are seeing um, coalescing of the Hong Kong diaspora overseas, and the you know the Hong Kong, the overseas Hong Kong communities. Obviously, uh, the overseas Hong Kong community has responded to you know to these developments. I think in mostly a very positive way um, by trying, and I think they understand that the, and in, in fact there, I know that there have been discussions amongst both people in Hong Kong and overseas Hong Kong Hong Kongese about what Hong Kong is now, right? And whether Hong Kong still exists um, in Hong Kong or does it only exist in their communities abroad? And I think a lot of people are coming to the conclusion that it's the latter. And so there's, and then, then the question is, what does that mean, right? For there to be a community of people that is no longer, uh, that can no longer access and live in the place that uh, that informs their their culture and, um, and their societies. So, the other, the but for people who are who remain in Hong Kong, it's really interesting. I, like I said, I know some people who did go back. There are many who never left, of course, um, but some some people who go back and who went back, and they were they went back at a slightly earlier time when things were still in flux, and I, you know, I think they knew where things were going. They were not they were they were idealistic but not wholly naive, <laughs> and. And I think that they wanted to go back in order to do what they could at the time when things were still up in the air, but also even now that there would be so that there will be people who have firm beliefs and um, values in liberal democracy and who can pass those on in you know less public ways and by their time, uh, you know, depending um, and seeing what happens. I think ultimately what will happen to the Hong Kong Chinese will depend on what happens in Beijing, right? I mean, uh, like this election, everything's decided in Beijing. And so if if there's instability in the mainland, if the CCP for some reason loses its grip, then we'll see a much brighter future for Hong Kong. But until then, I think it's it, uh, it'll be quite difficult for the Hong Kong for the um, for Hong Kongers who remain. Yes, I, I I completely agree with that. I mean, was, as you were speaking, I was thinking almost of um, the, the few people who did go back as this was beginning to um, unfold. It's as if they were underground Christians or something, still hold, holding the keeping to the keeping to the faith. I, I've been struck by how the Hong Kong diaspora has done exactly as you've described it, trying keep keeping the flame alive, as it were, uh, whether they are. Uh, people in Melbourne or in London or in 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 North America. I went a few weeks ago to this uh, screening of the documentary film, The Revolution of Our Times. Almost all of the others were Hong Kong people, and it was a great day for Kleenex tissues. I'll tell you. I mean, it was just the 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 the, the sobbing and the sadness of what had been lost was just um, really quite overpowering. And I had the sense that this could these have been, you know, 
white Russian emigres in 1917. Someplace. It was a very, they were, all, they were determined to keep that, um, keep that kind of identity uh, for themselves. If you read Louisa Lim, who is a journalist now living in Melbourne, who's written was The People's Republic of Amnesia, has a new book coming out. She previewed it in the Financial Times over the over the weekend. And it's a, it's it is about this. It's about the effort to keep it sort of keep it alive. Meanwhile, back in Hong Kong, you have people, mind you, the city's population, there are more than a million recent mainland migrants into the city. So that's what. 15% of the population or were a little bit more actually for them this is this is fine um, you have the sort of middle class uh, the, the brain drain that we've been speaking about they're gone or looking for ways to to leave and then you have a big block of native hong kong people or hong kong people who who came long ago from the mainland who seem to me to be sort of sinking into a kind of sullen acceptance uh, of this. They're getting on with things, you know, they're eating bitterness. And, um, but that too doesn't, uh, doesn't augur well for the city's retaining its place as a kind of vibrant international financial cultural center. So I'm sorry, hate to be so bleak. It's a place that I'm very, 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 very fond of with lots of family and friends connections there and it's been very distressing to see how it's how it's changed but i um as, as yvonne just said until there's until there's regime regime change in beijing which doesn't look on the horizon i would not be very hopeful about where hong kong is going well thanks it is a uh, it's always a uh... Sad to finish on on a down note, but uh, as um, as you're both looking at the situation, it's hard not to um, to draw this conclusion that um, at least in the short term, Hong Kong's future looks uh, looks quite difficult, and that the kinds of pressures and we've seen over the last few years will will likely continue as John Lee takes over from Carrie Lam. I'd like to thank my guests today, Yvonne Chu from the U.S. Naval War College. Bill McCahill, a senior advisor to the National Bureau of Asian Research. Thank you both so much for joining us for this uh, issue of a Asia Insight, um, and we'll look forward to talking with you again. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.